Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to the Arkansas AgCast for July 22nd. I'm your host, Rob Anderson. On this week's edition, we hear how the Diversity in Agriculture virtual conference went and what was shared and learned by participants. We also talked to podcaster and speaker Vance Crow, who delivered the keynote address at Arkansas Farm Bureau's Officers and Leaders Conference, and we learn about all things hummingbird with an Arkansas Audubon Society ornithologist. First, Steve Powell sits down with consultant, speaker, and podcaster Vance Crow to discuss the themes of his keynote address at this year's Arkansas Farm Bureau Officers and Leaders Conference in Hot Springs. Crow, who previously served as Director of Millennial Engagement with Monsanto, talked about how organizations can change without losing what makes them special. Hi, everybody. Welcome into this portion of the podcast. Let me sort of set the scene for you, if you will. We are at our Officers and Leaders Convention, which has just adjourned in Hot Springs, Arkansas, at the Convention Center. And we just heard from a keynote speaker by the name of Vance Crow, whose two-word descriptor of what he does is communications consultant. But I'm here to tell you that that does not do Vance Crow justice at all. I encourage all of you, if you get a chance, to go to our Facebook and watch Vance's keynote speech uh, there to understand what this gentleman is all about. And I'm thrilled to have Vance here with us just after he gave the speech. Vance, thanks for taking the time. Oh, I'm glad to be here. You know, there's still the adrenaline of uh, being <laughs> right. at the conference coming off here, yeah. so we'll see if uh, if I have anything sensible to say now. Well, you had so many sensible things to say. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about, if you had to encapsulate what you just addressed our members about, what would you, what would you say? Well, right now, I think all of us can agree that we're in a time of chaos, right? We see all these people not being able to get along. We see that the institutions that we've built over a long period of time are breaking down. And so what I was uh, trying to talk about today was how does an organization like the Arkansas Farm Bureau, who is in its prime right now, you come to a conference like this, you guys are one of the best in the entire country. And you say, well, you got to get ready for change. And that, you know, if you're, if you were here, you'd maybe kind of think, why do, why do we need to change? We're at the prime right now, but talking about How are you going to get ready for the continuing chaos that's going to come? Because change is going to accelerate now moving forward. Yeah, and you have change that that affects uh, the the individual organization like Arkansas Farm Bureau. And and then you have changes that are affecting society at large. And so you've got sort of two... two focuses there, right? Yeah. I mean, there's things that are going on around us that we've adapted like technology that we, you wouldn't really think it would change things. So one of the examples we use in the talk is turn by turn navigation. This feels like it gives us all this time back in our lives because you don't have to sit down and draw out the map of where you're going to go. You don't have to worry about if you pass the red barn, you went too far because the thing just takes you there. But what happens to a society when you change something that's been so fundamental to the way we communicate, giving people directions, getting lost, having those kind of novelty experiences, what does that change about society? Many of those changes are great, but some of them are going to leave us in a place where we, we have to readjust who we are and how we interact. And one of the things that, that I took from where you're coming from now is that, that what you talk about, this inability to pass down uh, our institutions. And that's it just really hit home with me that this is a problem that that is affecting our society at large 
And it's something we've all got to confront, don't we? Yeah, the golden age of our institutions. I don't know. I don't want to be too nostalgic about right. the 60s and 70s, but there was a time when people, whether their work was great or whether their family life was great, they always continued to go to these community organizations. They had a place in society and somebody could pick them up. They could find mentors, all of these things. Right. But these are going away. If yeah. you live in a major city right now, you move into a city, it's so hard to integrate because all of those community organizations that used to be there aren't there anymore. Yeah, you use the numbers about uh, church attendance declining, but that but that also extends to, ci- to civic organizations and things that people just don't get involved with like they used to. It, and it, is, is it that we as a society are self-isolating because of the technology, or is it just that the organizations themselves aren't reaching out and including uh, new people and have this infusion of, of younger generations? I think it's a little bit of all those things. You know, it's a little bit like soil, where if you're like, what's the one thing that, that this soil needs? Like, nobody can really give you that answer. But you can say a lot of the organizations, people get into a position of power. They are the ones that know how to make it work. And it's hard to pass that yeah. power on to other people. You know, you can see, hey, if we hand that down and they make a mistake, things don't go as well. So in part, it's what are the decisions leaders are making? Another part of it is, People have restructured their lives in completely different ways. In the city, we now have very transactional relationships. We don't, you don't belong to a community organization. You belong to something you pay a subscription to. You, you, <laughs> right, you know, yes. And as soon as you want to leave, you leave and they find a new customer and you find a new provider. It's all part of what you're calling the, the age of acceleration. So, something my grandfather used to tell me that was fascinating to me was that he, he told me, he said, Steve, when I grew up, I, I, they, I, he, he was in rural Alabama, and they woke him up at 5 o'clock in the morning to come out and see his first automobile. And he said it was a huge event in rural Alabama. No one had seen there. Of course, there had been automobiles around, but in rural Alabama there weren't. But he went on to also live to see, you know, the, a man on the moon. And I thought, man, what an incredible life to see your first automobile and then see a man land on the moon in that same lifetime. But we don't underestimate the age that we live in right now. We're seeing acceleration that maybe not as uh, obvious to illustrate, but it is even more uh, advancement going on right before our very eyes that we just don't appreciate or understand. Well, you know, I think that's a great point. The, the thing it brings to mind is think about what a text message actually is, right? You have a thought inside of your head. You decide, I want to send that thought to another person. You type it into a little box and it sends it off and they get to read your thought. That's no different than telepathy. Right? That's, <laughs> exactly. That is actual telepathy. That's magic, right? right? And, and you know, it happened all around us. And if you go watch television shows from the early 2000s, they make kind of mention of it. Oh, my kids like text messaging, right? right? But now it's so integrated into our lives, we don't even realize we have the power of the gods. We have the ability with our phones to send a thought and have a response instantaneously. These are such large changes that they will inevitably change the way our culture works, but it's hard to know exactly how it's happening, what's going to happen as a result. Right. Well, I encourage you to go back on our Facebook page and watch Vance's speech because it is absolutely worth every moment you devote to it. Can I talk to you real quickly on a personal level, just about your personal history? You have a fascinating, (laughs) fascinating uh, biography, if you will. You worked in the Peace Corps. You grew up a middle child, right? How did being a middle child inform, do you think, who you are today? Oh, I mean, like, uh, I was never special, right? Yeah, right. As every child probably feels. But, um, 
you know, I had uh, an older brother that was way cooler than me. I had sisters that were out saving the world. I had younger siblings that were better athletes. And so you start to really think about what am I going to do to make a mark on the world? And those answers aren't obvious as you're growing right. up. And so I think that I had the chance to see what is like for other people to excel. And then that pushed me to think about the world in, in different ways. Yeah. And one of the ways that you did is you, you did join the Peace Corps. And you told me earlier that it was something your father had done. Yeah, my dad was uh, we grew up in a small town in central Illinois he was a stockbroker uh, when when country farmers didn't have stockbrokers so I was around the ag community and around like that kind of intersection between those two but one of the things that my dad had done that that not many people had done at that point was join the Peace Corps and lived in another part of the world spoke another language knew how to talk about people that lived and thought about things completely differently. So I grew up with a great deal of admiration and a really deep desire to go live among other people. And really, not just the Peace Corps, all these other things that I ended up doing, you know, being a deckhand or were right. working in public radio or working at the World Bank, these were all things where I was trying to figure out how do other people live? How do you integrate there? What do they have to teach us? You have, an, like I said, an amazing path to get to where you are today. I mean, you're talking about the World Bank. You're talking about the Peace Corps. You're talking about working as a decade. And then, and this, this might really make folks who weren't in the audience today really uh, perk up their ears, you worked for, dun dun, dun Monsanto. Tell me about that experience. Well, like, uh, I don't want to ruin the the story, which is on the yeah. Facebook page in that thing, but I, I went in to do an interview for a job I didn't want because everybody that I knew viewed Monsanto as no different than North Korea. Yeah. So this was an evil place to me. And so the idea that I would ultimately go work there uh, was not even one that I expected. But that experience, actually, being around people that thought about the world differently than I did, um, showed me how little I actually knew about things that I was certain I knew. Yeah. I was certain that farmers were bad. I was absolutely, unequivocally, the world is getting worse with the way we grow things. And it's just because everyone around me thought that. And so going there gave me a whole new perspective on the world. A great life lesson that we shouldn't perhaps be so intractable in the way we look at life and have opinions of things without using empathy in a lot of cases to, to understand. Absolutely. I mean, I, I often say that uh, the... It's what you, the things that you think are so clear in your mind are oftentimes the ones that are the most wrong. And the reason that you come with so much passion and power that this is the way and this is the only way is because that's your brain trying to protect you from that really uneasy feeling that you get when you don't actually know what's going on. Yeah, well, what a great way to put that. Vance, where else? I know you do a podcast. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Where can we see and hear more of your work? So I started the podcast when I left Monsanto because I wanted to be around people that were just as smart as the scientists and geneticists and farmers that I was working with. And so I used the podcast to allow me to keep having good conversations. So I had things to talk about when I'm invited to a place like the Arkansas Farm Bureau. And this is really expanded. So I interview people that have a different way of looking at the world. I don't want the orthodox thinkers. I want people that have ideas that many people think are heterodox, you know, just completely yeah. not allowed. Um, so that's everything during COVID from people, the first people that were saying, maybe that came from a lab, uh, mm -hmm. to people that just, they do a, a ranching a little bit different. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed a woman from Australia where they're dealing with a gigantic 
mice problem. We have millions wow. and millions and millions of mice running around. And they don't know how to stop it. It's so bad that all the records that the that the white people have there don't tell them what to do. So they've been going out and meeting with the elders of the Aboriginal people to be like, hey, do you guys have any stories or any cave drawings that tell us what we should do here? Because we don't know how to solve this problem. Cave draw. That's old school. Cave draw. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I'm telling you, uh, there, there's a lot of knowledge uh, uh, that can be found by by looking back a generation or two, or even a lot further than that. Where, where online can we go to? So you can just it's Vance Crow podcast. So you Love can it. get that on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, anywhere where it's uh, um, that you you listen to podcasts. Vance Crow, congratulations on a fantastic speech. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Go find his podcast. He talks about a lot of stuff a lot of agriculture in there too so make sure you find vance online thank you vance thank you steve next up jason brown talks with alvin peer committee member for the 2021 diversity and agriculture conference and outreach coordinator for usda nrcs arkansas peer reviewed the highlights of this year's conference which was held virtually and shared ways that arkansas farmers and ranchers can support diversity in the state's agriculture industry Today, I'm joined by Alvin Peer, Outreach Coordinator for USDA NRCS Arkansas. Alvin served on the Diversity in Ag Conference Planning Committee and is here to share a recap of today's event. Alvin, thank you for joining me. Congrats on a what I hear is a great conference. I appreciate you making the time to join us here on the Arkansas AgCast. Okay, Alvin, so if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about your role at NRCS. We'll start there. My role as the state outreach coordinator for the Natural Resource Conservation Service is to help producers that have never had the opportunity or the knowledge of the Natural Resource Conservation Service and to bring our programs as far as our technical and financial assistance opportunities to them, um, regardless to if they're urban Mm -hmm. or the last 40 at the furthest area in Lakeview. Okay. Reaching them where they are is my goal, and that's what I do, uh, spreading the word about how to get conservation on the ground through our conservation practices. Yeah. So have you worked in agriculture your your entire career? <laughs> I've worked for the Natural Resource Conservation Service for over 23 years currently. Uh, the the thing about me and my career, I'm originally a Chicago native. Oh, okay. So my opportunity uh, on the farm and learning about the farm didn't start till I was, I relocated f- to go to the school, uh, University of Arkansas Pine Bluff, where mm-hmm. I gained my career, in, uh, my not my career, but my education in regulatory science with the agriculture option. Yeah. So agriculture sort of became a passion while you're going to going to school absolutely well that's great um well tell us a little bit about this uh the diversity in ag conference that that just wrapped up i'd, I'd love for you to share a little bit about that with us well the, the committee worked together to develop this year's uh conference uh was identified as empowering today's farmers for the future mm-hmm. was our our slogan for this year uh looking at the various parties on the committee, we developed the different topics of discussion. Always thinking about the future was where we tied the career in agriculture as well as making agriculture popular for youth, mm-hmm. along with looking at how do you market your farm? How do you brand your farm? Um, 
urban agriculture is a whole new variety of our opportunities in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so with me being with NRCS and knowing that this is a new branding part of our agency, I brought that to the committee and the committee agreed that urban ag would be a great option for us looking at how we're taking practices such as high tunnels and bringing them to our urban areas. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at uh, the current situation at hand uh, as far as uh, bringing uh, Dr. Dwayne Goldman into play as far as his new position as senior advisor for racial equity, uh, bringing this information to a broad audience mm-hmm. to ensure that they know what's going on out here in our world and how do we bring them, bring it to them as well as receive more information to the public. Yeah, I like that. So sort of applying that, that um, goal that you have at NRCS of taking the information where the, to the people where they are, I sort of applying that back to this conference. So, uh, so I'm, I'm, you've used a term that I'm intrigued by. And, and, uh, it sounds to me like maybe one of those terms, kind of like sustainability that many people can assign many different definitions. So set us straight here, urban agriculture, give us an idea. Can you paint us a picture of what you mean when you say urban agriculture? When you think of urban agriculture, you think of, um, back as children, our families had small farm, mm-hmm. small gardens where we produce vegetable and produce for our own consumption. Mm-hmm. So when you come into an urban farming scenario, bringing it to the community where you're taking, example, a uh, uh, old abandoned lot mm-hmm. and start to look at how USDA may be able to help you look at applying a small garden right there in the community, urban farming, uh, looking at how do we have more fresh produce locally. Mm-hmm. Uh, years ago, uh, we... One of our branding was local grown and you know, how to, it's going to be a change. Um, well, not necessarily a change, but an additive to mm-hmm. what we've known as local grown and bringing it more into our urban setting. Uh, it kind of ties back to, um, during our session, we talked about 4-H and, uh, uh FFA, mm-hmm. you know, those are programs that we know well in our rural community. But what about the inner city? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we get programs such as that? So urban farming is, is I kind of tied to that same scenario. Right. Because farming has always been rural. But when we start bringing it to the smaller attributes in our inner cities of uh, rainwater, capturing rainwater to to uh, irrigate our, our small garden crops mm-hmm. in the inner city, looking at how we bring that and bring more information to the public as well as adding an additive in the community where people are now working together to produce more for each other. Yeah. I I imagine that that really starts to change uh, the look of agriculture and how we, how we might imagine agriculture or, or maybe over the, over the past several generations have, have thought about agriculture. Well, from the aspect, um, part of my job is I work with youth. And mm-hmm. most of the time, youth, when you say agriculture, the a, a major in ag, the first thing they say is, oh, you want to be a farmer. Mm-hmm. No, farming is much more than just um, cultivating the soil in 
rural America. Mm-hmm. Farming is is looking at your your water sources, looking at uh, erosion, looking at all the things that make up how we sustain this great world that we live in. Yeah, yeah, even uh, communications aspect in agriculture and and business and. Uh, Econom- we have economists on staff here. Yeah, there's so many different aspects of agriculture that you could get involved in. I, w- I tell my the youth that I talk with when we talk about careers with the Natural Resource Conservation Service, agriculture touches every facet of the United States of mm-hmm. America. Yeah, Regardless, as you said, economists, accountants, we have all of those in our various ag industries mm-hmm. throughout the world. Yeah, that's that's right, and and oftentimes when 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 I hear ag careers discuss something that I've been sort of passionate about my entire career, uh, you hear uh, a, a job opening rate or availability far outpaces those who who have the background to to take those jobs. So generally, a pretty uh, fertile market, if you will, uh, for for folks looking for jobs. Absolutely, and one of the things I, I would say is. Um, Coming to the University of Arkansas Pine Bluff, I was originally a computer systems major. Oh, wow. Okay. But after arriving here and, and researching uh, the job market, mm-hmm. um, it was 65% of the students were, were had jobs and the other portion were still looking. Mm-hmm. And 90% of the students in the ag department were actually working in their field of sort. Wow. Yeah, that's so, that's powerful. That was a major transition for me. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Well, thinking back on the conference, uh, do you have a takeaway uh, that was really impactful for you today? Well, I would say one of the greatest takeaways for me was the interaction of our youth. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking at how manners, students from manners talked about their choices and the things that are going on in manners and opportunities uh 4-H and and FFA currently and mm-hmm. looking at you know what can I do in NRCS to bring more of that information to our youth to let them know that the ag career is a thriving industry for tomorrow's youth mm-hmm. and the opportunities are there yeah you know we just attended an FFA uh ag, ag teacher uh conference down at Camp Couchdale and got to meet um, a young lady who has uh, restarted after 17 years of being dormant the ag program in Lee County in Mariana. And she has just talked about how impactful her her ag classes were when she was a student and how that sort of derived this passion for her. And so I think, you know, I think we're starting to see that come back and, and as you said, diversify the opportunities for some of these organizations and, and ag focus and, and careers and things like that as we as we move forward. It's it's really exciting to see. And it's amazing because the student that you're the young lady you're talking about was actually in school with me. Oh, okay. And, and I, Are I, you I, from Mariana? My, uh, no, you're from Chicago. I'm but, from uh, Chicago yeah, so. by way of Mariana. My okay. parents are originally from Lee County. Well I grew up in Forest City. So okay. we're we were neighbors. We were neighbors. Uh-huh. Well, so why is this conversation so important to the state's ag industry? Well, looking at diversity and and looking at opportunities, 
uh, bringing diversity in ag and empowering our constituents about what is offered through agriculture, mm-hmm. what options they have. Because sometimes people have options in there. Part of my job is helping them see those options. Mm-hmm. And being uh, uh, looking at our minority clientele, um, sometimes they don't get the information. Mm-hmm. And so doing a conference of this nature, Farm Bureau is helping get that information out mm-hmm. to everyone in a broad approach, yeah. uh, giving them an opportunity because everything is volunteer. Working, signing up for NRCS programs, it's a volunteer program. Uh, uh, we don't go out and select people. Uh, they come to us, and then we share that information with them. Uh, as the outreach coordinator, I'm always out uh, talking to people about what we have and what we offer. Mm-hmm. But it's their choice to come in and sign up in our various offices. Right. Okay. No, I think I think that's a I think that's a well made well made point and and underscores again going out and reaching the people uh, where they are. You know who who need this information. Well, moving forward. Uh, as we start to wrap up here, moving forward, how can farmers and ranchers in the state support um, some of these diversity efforts in agriculture? Well, uh, I think one of the first thing is is bringing everybody to the table, knowing mm-hmm. all of the stakeholders, because sometimes the small farmer may hear but won't speak about what they need. And so being more inclusive mm-hmm. of those um one of my positions is um, is uh, I, I teach a, a, a course for the agency, and when you look at diversity, it's 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 not just black and white. It's am I a berry producer or a row crop producer? Mm-hmm. If you notice the panel, we had a row crop, we had alternative crops, and we had uh, forester mm-hmm. forestry producer. So it's the diversity. Bring that diversity to help. Every sector know that there's somebody here that can help you. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's very important. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a great point also is is, is having that uh that those opportunities or, or those people at the table to provide that system of support, especially as someone's getting started. I mean, uh getting started in agriculture from the ground up is not an easy an easy lift. And one of the things that I've found found a lot is um our small and and minority farmers meetings you know you have to be a part of the meetings because that's where the information is gathered right Uh, extension does meetings in every county Mm -hmm. nrcs does meetings outreach meetings to bring their programs be a part of the meetings to find out what's new what new opportunities are out there Uh, farm bureau diversity and ag it's bringing more information to our constituents. So it's very important to not just glaze over, but be a part of those meetings to see what questions you have. Even if you're not asking the question during the meeting, know the contact to call to get the information that you need. Right. Okay. That's. I think that's great advice. Well, as we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to add? Any 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 additional information or so one of the things that I would add is the Natural Resource Conservation Service programs. As I said earlier, our volunteer is a volunteer. You come in to sign up for our programs. Um, the opportunities are there for technical assistance, financial assistance. Um, 
But one thing for sure, if you don't come in, sign up. <laughs> we know that the potential for that assistance is not there. Yeah. So that's great. And a quick Google search, I'm sure, of USDA NRCS Arkansas will get you um, to some resources. I know for sure because I've been on there that uh, folks can find you uh, and your information there. Can email you directly through there. Thank you for the opportunity to. to uh, be a part of today's diversity and ag conference and i look forward to what's coming in the future because every day is a new opportunity and a new chance to try something that we haven't done before and I, that's the way the world works absolutely and thank you again uh mr alvin peer for connecting with us here on the arkansas ag cast i appreciate your time this afternoon and uh hey let's catch up again soon sounds like there's a lot a lot more we could talk about thanks a lot mr brown Finally, Jason chats with Arkansas Audubon Society ornithologist Dr. Dan Scheiman to talk hummingbirds. Dr. Scheiman tells us if there are truly fewer hummingbirds in the state this year and does a bit of myth-busting about one of Earth's smallest birds. Today we're joined by Audubon Arkansas ornithologist Dr. Dan Scheiman to talk about all things hummingbirds. They called you Dan the Birdman, so I asked you to join us after hearing from several people that the Arkansas hummingbird population seems scarce this year. I look forward to our conversation, Dr. Scheiman. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Yes. All right. Well, let's dive right in. Um, let's, we'll just start off with some basics here. How long have you been working with birds, uh, and how did you become interested in ornithology as a career? Well, I had long been interested in nature as a kid, and when I was 11, I went to a relative's house, and they had a feeder with chickadees on it. I thought that was really interesting. So my parents got me a feeder and binoculars and the field guide, and it blossomed from there. And I joined my local Audubon chapter and learned a lot about birds and decided early on that's what I wanted to do. So I went to school to study birds and get my Ph.D. in ornithology. And then I got lucky enough to get a job with National Audubon Society here in Arkansas right out of grad school. And now I get to do my dream job of working with birds and teaching people about birds and sharing my passion for birds. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So are you native to Arkansas? I should have asked that. I'm actually from Long Island, New York. <laughs> okay, I see. Well, I, I don't know. I hope Arkansas is treating you well, although I know the weather this time of year is much better up, up in the Northeast. <laughs> yeah, it is rather hot, but I don't mind that too much. And, and I've been in Arkansas for over 16 years now, so it's my home now. You're you're officially acclimated, we'll say. All right. For sure. All right, so what about hummingbirds? Have you always studied hummingbirds, or is this sort of a necessity? I know we've been talking about uh, your office getting quite a few calls about hummingbirds year after year, not just this year. Uh, have you always uh, studied or been interested in hummingbirds, or is this, is this like I said, a necessity? Well, actually, my research in grad school was on grassland birds, so that's sort of my scientific speciality. Mm -hmm. But uh, as an ornithologist, you have to know a little bit about a lot of different kinds of birds and be prepared to answer frequently asked bird questions. So I have had to study up on hummingbirds to be able to help people with their questions about these really neat little guys. Yeah. Um, well, cool. So, so, so 
pretty familiar with hummingbirds then I, I know they're they're really popular especially in the springtime and again in this year uh, this time of the year here in arkansas hummingbirds and speaking of that hummingbirds are one of the most talked about birds on the on the planet this is due to my unofficial research i want to be very clear about that uh what makes hummingbirds so interesting to to humans uh, i'd just be curious to if you if you have any insight there I would gather if you ask different people, their answers would be different. But in general, I'd say that they're they're just such fascinating little birds because they're so different from all the other birds around our yards and farms, right? They are mm-hmm. they lead these seemingly fast and furious lifestyles, and they can fly like no other bird. They're the only birds that can not only hover in midair, but they can fly straight up, straight down, and even backwards. Mm-hmm. And they do this because they can move their wings in this figure eight pattern. So this gives them lift both from the upstroke as well as the downstroke. And of course they fly, they flap their wings really fast. We're talking uh, a ruby throated hummingbird flaps its wings more than 50 times a second. Wow. And the smaller hummingbird species flap their wings even faster, which makes hummingbirds as a group, the, really the fastest flappers of all of the bird world. Wow. So that speed of the wing and this combined with this figure eight pattern is what gives them that ability to sort of move on command as if they were being shifted by, by hand even. That's right. It's unique among the bird world. They're not just like flapping up and down. It's that kind of side to side figure eight motion that makes this flight different from all other bird flight. Wow, that's fascinating. So cool. All right, so I've seen a lot of conversation online about the absence of hummingbirds here in central Arkansas this year. And I'm so curious, is this a real scarcity or is it just our imagination? Well, the data I've looked at suggests that ruby-throated hummingbird populations are fairly stable. And I should say the the ruby-throated hummingbird is the hummingbird of the eastern United States. It's the only one that breeds all across the eastern and central U.S. Okay. So that's our main hummingbird species. We get a few others in migration in winter. We can touch on that later. But the ruby-throated hummingbird, widespread, fairly stable, and really their, their distribution and abundance in Arkansas and any place in Arkansas is really dependent on season and habitat. So, of course, during spring migration, we'll see that influx of hummingbirds as they're moving north, and they're visiting our feeders in high numbers because they need that fuel for their long journeys, and because in the spring, there's not that many flowers around, Mm -hmm. right? Then visitation slows down as the summer comes on because the migrants have moved north. We're left with fewer birds that have decided to stay here and breed here. In the summertime, they're territorial, so they are keeping intruders away from their food sources. Uh, And then also, what's really important to know is that they are forest-nesting birds. They nest on tree branches in extensively forested areas. So a treeless landscape is going to host few to no hummingbirds in the breeding season, Whereas you could go to, say, one of our forested parks like Petagene, and if they have a hummingbird feeder up at the visitor center, you might see dozens of hummingbirds around all summer long because there's lots of birds breeding around there and all that forest. 
Uh, and also in the breeding season, there's lots of wildflowers around, so they really don't need our sugar water. And then what's really important to know is that they feed their babies insects and spiders, not nectar. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, so they need native plants because that's where the insects are. And um, a large manicured lawn with few ornamental plants and where insecticides are sprayed, that's not going to offer any food for baby hummingbirds. So we really need the plants. And then late summertime comes around. you got the young leaving the nest, so numbers pick up again. Birds are heading south. And then the numbers peak through the fall until they have all gone south for the winter sometime around mid-November. And then we won't see them again until mid-March. Okay, yeah. So... Uh... I've learned several things just in the last couple of minutes of you, of you sharing. Uh, Is there a, is there a, you you mentioned mid November, is there a sort of a date that we should look for? Is there a a temperature sort of scale that we should look at to, um, to sort of say our last goodbyes to the hummingbird for a few months? Well, for birds, it's all about day length that drives their migration and for hummingbirds, I'd say if you don't see any more hummingbirds by Thanksgiving, that's the latest I'd say they might be around, then it's time to take your feeders down for the winter. Okay. Really, come November time, if you don't see any more birds visiting your feeder, you take your feeders down. Okay. Speaking of feeders, um, I, I, we've just moved ours at my home because we have not seen, uh, personally, have not seen very many hummingbirds this year. So we're we're wondering maybe it's too close to the kitchen window or something like that. So can you share some tips on how we can best prep our properties to host uh, hummingbirds? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, there are definitely some hummingbird feeder guidelines that I need to share because that's so important for making sure that you're providing uh, safe and healthy food for the hummingbird. Okay. So, um, so first of all, you've got to keep your feeders clean. That means replacing the sugar water at least every three days in mild weather, but in hot weather like this, Every single day, you've oh, got wow. to take out that sugar water because it will get moldy fast. And you can't just empty it out and put fresh water in. You have to actually clean your feeders with soap and water every single time and dry them out thoroughly before you put new sugar water in there. And then the, the recipe for sugar water is four parts water to one part white table sugar. And I, I remember... Uh, I remember that by looking at my hand, where okay. my thumb is the sugar and my fingers are the water. So okay. Four parts water, one part sugar. And uh, it's just white table sugar, no brown sugar, no organic sugar, no red dyes, no <laughs> preservatives. Uh, and um, one last thing is that ants can be a problem for hummingbird feeders. So you can get an ant moat or just any kind of cup that you fill with water that goes between the hook and the hummingbird feeder will keep the ants from getting on the feeder. Never, ever use Vaseline, oil, grease, or anything like that near a hummingbird feeder because if a hummingbird or another bird comes in contact with that stuff, gets on its feathers, 
it will never get it off. It will ruin the feathers, and the bird may die because the feathers are no longer waterproof or keeping the bird's temperature regulated. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's a lot yeah. of helpful information. So uh, I love the thumb and fingers analogy. So one part sugar, four parts water, no red food coloring. Your your hummingbirds will find your fear even if the, the liquid in there is, is clear, correct? Right, right. Most feeders come with red parts, which is all you need to attract the bird. And really, mm-hmm. it's not even about red coloring. It's about the um, consistency of the food placement. A lot of people tell me uh, spring comes, the hummingbirds arrive, and before they get the feeders up, the hummingbird goes to the spot where the feeder was last year because wow. they remember where the food was. So if you keep your sugar water, your feeder, in a consistent location, once they find it, they will know to go to visit it regardless of the color of the feeder. And hummingbirds visit flowers of a wide variety of colors, not just red tubular flowers. Right, right. Okay. All right. I, I love this. This is uh, good, good information, good tips for us all, I think. So speaking of hummingbirds and migratory patterns and things like that, how has the migration pattern uh, of hummingbirds changed over the years, if it has, I guess I should ask. Well, actually, data do suggest that hummingbirds are leaving their wintering homes in Mexico and Central America earlier now on their way to the Gulf Coast, that they're actually arriving up to 15 days earlier now than they did decades ago. And that's in part in response to uh, warming winter temperatures and earlier springs. And then also, the rise in popularity of hummingbird feeding and the increase in landscaping using plants that hummingbirds like all across the the Gulf of Mexico Mm -hmm. means that we actually are seeing a lot of hummingbirds spend the winter along the Gulf Coast of Mexico. And uh, and not just ruby-throated hummingbirds, but there's a variety of western breeding species that move eastward in migration and then they will, they may spend the winter somewhere in the eastern U.S., but the closer you get to the Gulf of Mexico, the more there are in uh, wintering over in the U.S. Okay, yeah, all right, cool. Well, are there any popular myths? I bet we've already busted a couple, I guess. But are there any popular myths that you're aware of about hummingbirds that we could, that we could bust right now? Yeah, definitely. Well, first of all, of course, hummingbirds do not migrate on the backs of geese and other large birds. They're perfectly capable of flying nonstop across the Gulf of Mexico, provided, of course, they have enough fuel in terms of sugar, water, and plants to fuel them up. Mm -hmm. And they can then fly nonstop up to 500 miles across the Gulf of Mexico, which takes about 18 to 22 hours. so they are remarkable migrants, these little birds that can make that long journey. Mm-hmm. And then um, another, and also they, they don't migrate in flocks, right? They migrate as individuals, but a whole bunch of individuals will take advantage of the same favorable weather conditions to strike out across the Gulf of Mexico. And then you could have a whole bunch of them kind of landing on the shoreline around the same time. And then another one is that keeping feeders up in the fall will prevent them from migrating. And, and hummingbirds, like other birds, migrate when their hormones tell them to, and their hormones are stimulated by day length changes. So that urge to migrate is really strong. 
and having a hummingbird feeder up is not going to keep them from migrating. But actually, it's a really good idea to have your feeders up, as I said, until you no longer see any birds, because that way the birds have that fuel to power that, that long journey so they can get across the Gulf of Mexico safely. Okay, yeah. The 500, man, that is just truly amazing considering their size, um, that they can fly for that long of a sustained time, up to 22 hours to make that journey. They have, um, yeah, they have amazing metabolisms. Wow. Um, okay, so ra- sort of wrapping up here, uh, gosh, we may we may have covered this, but I almost almost uh, won't ask this. I'll, I'll ask the question anyway, but are there any other interesting facts about hummingbirds that may be new to our listeners? Well, one that I learned recently when doing some research on hummingbirds as pollinators is that a, a hummingbird's tongue, first of all, is longer than its bill. And when the tongue is inside its head, it actually wraps around the back of the skull. And then the hummingbird's tongue is forked at the tip. And it's lined with these hair-like extensions called lamellae. Uh-huh. So when the tongue goes into the flower and into the nectar, the fork separates. These lamellae extend outwards. And as the bird pulls its tongue out of the nectar, the tongue comes together, the lamellae roll inside, and this traps the nectar in the tongue. They don't suck up nectar like a straw. They actually grab hold of the nectar and bring it into their mouth. And they do this as, uh, in about 120th of a second. That means uh-huh. a hummingbird is dipping its tongue into a flower about 20 times a second. Oh my God! Well, so my producer Jenny here in the studio with me, our our minds are just blown, like jaws on the floor right now. We are completely blown away by this hummingbird knowledge. There's, that is yeah. wild. So the, the feeding process, I, I'll just tell you, I'll probably get tons of uh, of uh, hate mail for this, but I've always thought that 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 saw straw suction type motion is how they how they ate. Um, or consume food or pollen. Um, wow, I'm just that wow, mind blown. So, <laughs> how cool! Well, thank you so much for sharing uh, such interesting knowledge. I can't wait. I, I think I think we should do this probably regularly um, and talk about uh, different bird species and 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 maybe even how they interact with with agriculture uh, as we move on. Would you be willing to to come back and join us again? Sure, it'd be my pleasure. I love talking about birds. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Dr. Dan, the Birdman Shyman. I appreciate you so much, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon. Have a good day and enjoy the birds. That's it for this week's Arkansas AgCast. Join us again next Thursday for more news and views on Arkansas agriculture. 